We're in the fourth and final week of our current series for the new year. And we've been reflecting together, January is a time for new hopes and big dreams for the year ahead. And whatever those hopes and dreams are for you, I think we can all agree that we're all interested in a fresh start. Given our experience of the last two years, we're all interested in a fresh start. This time of year can also be challenging as we settle in to the long, cold winter. This winter already seems long and especially cold. And beyond all the obvious thieves of joy that are limited to this time of year, other thieves look to steal our joy in a more permanent way. And if we're not careful, they will. We could find ourselves living joy, joyless lives. Many people do. And the purpose of this series hasn't been to depress you, but to equip you to name those thieves <coughs> and identify strategies to help us guard against them. Thieves of joy. Thieves of joy are, are things like anger, fear, criticism, rejection, disappointment, disrespect. And that list could go on and on. Most all of us have these experiences and feel these emotions from time to time. And every time we do, they rob us of joy. We began this series by taking some time to look at one particular thief who turns out to be the biggest thief of all. We say that the person who gets in the way of my joy the most is me. We also discussed a working definition of joy for this series. Noted that joy is different than happiness. Happiness is a feeling. It's the feeling of contentment. And because it's a, a feeling like any other feeling, it comes and it goes. Joy, at least in the sense we're talking about it for this series, isn't so much a feeling as an experience. We experience joy at another level, a, a different level, a spiritual level, the level of our soul. We noted that we can, well, anticipate, range, control happiness. We can even manufacture and manipulate it. And in that sense, happiness is smaller than the sum total of who we are. Joy is an experience we enter into. And in that sense, it's bigger than the sum total of who we are. And ultimately, it's about discovering our primary identity in Christ. In the course of this series, we looked at twin enemies of joy, the twin enemies of worry and anxiety. Worry is when we allow our mind to dwell on difficulties or troubles, real or imagined. Anxiety is a feeling of nervousness or unease. Both can effectively rob our joy. And we learned an equally effective anecdote is prayer. Last week, we looked at what we called the cultural and community environment in which we live our lives, exposing us inevitably to so much sadness and sorrow, sadness and sorrow over so many things that we can do nothing about. The death of those three Baltimore firefighters last week is a tragic example things we can do nothing about. And we reflected together 
on what we call benevolent detachment. Benevolent detachment, paying attention to what saddens our heart. We must do that. But then earnestly bringing it to prayer where we give it over to God and let it go. As we wrap things up today, just a reminder that if you've missed any or all of this series, you can always find it all online on demand. That, of course, is at churchnativity.com. And online is a great way to share these messages with a friend or family member who perhaps needs a message of joy. Today, we're going to look we're going to look at those joy killers all around us all the time. They're called other people. <laughs> other people can be a source of great joy in our lives for sure, but other people can very effectively steal our joy. We've all had the experience of enjoying life, basking in some good news, feeling proud of some accomplishment, being in a good place emotionally, only to have someone say or do something that robbed us of joy. Perhaps they're opposing you or working against you out of jealousy or spite, selfishness or self-centeredness. Perhaps they're in a bad mood. They're having a bad day. They're unhappy. They're hurt. And you know what they say, hurt people hurt people. All the slammed doors and sulking robs you of joy. Perhaps they're critical of you and your efforts. They damn with faint, faint praise. They nitpick and annoy. Their gossip is poison. Their sarcasm is deadly. Perhaps they're basically toxic. And just being around them is a guaranteed negative experience. There's certainly dozens of other ways people can steal our joy, too. You've experienced many of them, and so have I. We could go on and on about other people and what they can do to frustrate, annoy, anger, scare, perplex, confuse us. For better or for worse, we care what people think. And when they don't like us, when they're unkind to us, it hurts our feelings, it hurts our hearts. But what to do about it all? How do we keep people from stealing our joy? Well, the answer is both simple and challenging. And we find it very clearly stated in today's second reading from St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Paul wrote to the Christian community in Corinth in Greece. It was a community who had many issues and problems, all of which stemmed from infighting and selfishness and a basic lack of concern for one another. Prompting Paul <coughs> to write a response that includes what have become some of the most famous and beloved verses in all of Scripture. Paul begins, I will show you a more excellent way. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. It is not pompous. It is not inflated. It's not rude. It doesn't speak of its own, on its own interest. It is not quick-tempered. It does not brood over injury. It does not rejoice over wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. 
Love bears all things, believes all things, endures all things. Rather than allowing other people to steal our joy, we can choose to love them instead. We can choose to love them instead. That sounds like, uh, well, a sentimental and silly cliche, doesn't it? Just love them instead. But in fact, choosing to love people when they are irritating us, when they are annoying us, when they are opposing us, even when they're attacking us, can powerfully change the dynamic of the situation. Think about it. When I say somebody else is stealing my joy, I'm passive. I'm the victim, or at least I'm acting like a victim. And while others can definitely hurt us, and that hurt is very real, when they, we choose to love in those situations instead, we become active. We become active agents in our own story. We choose to play the hero in our story, acting with love. Of course, love is an overused word, easily applied to everything, from our preferred blend of smoothie to our favorite new Netflix show. Generally speaking, there's love that is affection, love that is friendship, and love that is romance. But Paul isn't referring to any of those forms of love. Instead, Paul uses a Greek word with a very specific connotation. He uses the word agape. Agape is love that is completely for another person and never against them, that is completely for another person, that only seeks their well-being, their success. And unlike affection, friendship, or, or romance, it's a love that looks for nothing in return. You know, because they bring us, or at least can bring us, something we very much want, affection, friendship, and romantic love all come to us easily and naturally. Agape does not. It's not natural at all. But it's not unnatural either. It's supernatural. Agape love comes from the love of God. It's a strength and grace outside of ourselves that is divine in origin. And that's what Paul is referring to here. So Paul can go on to make these assertions. Agape love is patient. When God's love is at work in us, we're more tolerant with other people's hurts and hang-ups and faults and failures. To be patient means to be slow to anger, even in the face of others' bad behavior. Patience means it's okay that there's an imbalance in the relationship. Paul tells us agape love is kind. When God's love is working in us, we respond to other people with graciousness and charity, even when it's not reciprocated. Paul tells us agape love is not pompous. It's a choice to be humble, to approach each encounter in a self-effacing manner, to serve with a servant's heart. Paul tells us agape love does not brood over injury. It's not keeping score. It's not resentful. 
loving, joyful people, remember the good that others have done and choose to set aside other things. Agape love, Paul tells us, chooses to believe the best about others and accepts when people are less than their best. Paul goes on. For we know now partially, and we prophesy partially, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I used to talk as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I put childish things away. Children are transparent in their conflicts, aren't they? He hit me. No, he hit me first. Adults use the same hollow arguments to justify bad behavior. They just dress it up with better language. Maturing believers, on the other hand, know that they can choose to respond with love and increasingly make that choice. And it's a sign of their maturity. Next, Paul continues and concludes, at present, we see indistinctly as in a mirror. Fun fact, bet you didn't know this. The city of Corinth was a major manufacturing center in the Roman Empire for mirrors, Corinthian mirrors. It's a thing. You can check it out and look it up for yourself. Corinthian mirrors. So Paul's reference is a little bit cheeky. Corinthian mirrors were polished copper or tin discs and far from having the perfection of reflection of today's mirrors, they were, were concave or convex and so they gave a distorted image. And Paul's saying that right now, that's us. None of us knows God's love perfectly. We have at best a partial view. We also have a partially distorted view. God's word, however, gives us a perfect view, a perfect reflection of God's agape love. That's 1 Corinthians 13, a perfect reflection of God's agape love. You know, this passage contains some of the most beautiful verses in Scripture. It's true. And when it's read at weddings, as it often is, it sounds so charming, doesn't it? But it's not at all charming. It's not charming in the least. It's challenging. And when we hold it up as a standard for our own behavior, it's painfully challenging. I know it is for me. But in these beautiful words, Paul gives us the vision of where we can go in terms of pursuing joy. He's pointing us to a more excellent way that can be a vision for our living. And as we practice this kind of living, and boy, oh boy, does it take practice, we can begin, we can begin to see more clearly God's agape love. Well, as we wrap up this series, why not start off the new year by putting agape love into action with just one person, perhaps the person who steals your joy most easily, most consistently. You might be thinking, no way, I'll change when they change. Well then, you're choosing to be the victim rather than the active agent, the hero of your own story. 
Now, I'm not suggesting naivete or passivity, far from it. I'm suggesting a bold choice to grow and mature in love precisely through the most challenging of circumstances, the most difficult of people. And so today, as you leave church, we've prepared a prayer card our greeters will be distributing for you after Mass. Digital version is available to our online congregation today as well. It's actually a commitment card, really, that you can use to commit yourself, to promise yourself, to aspire, to follow 1 Corinthians living, to consistently choose to live a more joyful life. Take it, sign it, and tape it to your mirror and take a reminder from it every day. Perhaps one of the greatest indicators of spiritual maturity is how joyful we are with the joyless, how loving with the unlovable. Think of it this way. In your head, play the movie of someone giving your eulogy at your funeral. What would you want them to say? He was patient. He was kind. She was humble and always gracious. She was loving. He, he was joyful. 